The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. In this episode, we're going to look at how paper medical records are causing actual harm when they're lost. My guest is a doctor who's seen this firsthand, but first, as usual, a little bit about who you're listening to. Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist and conference speaker with 30 years experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books or seen me in The Guardian, Medium and elsewhere. I speak or facilitate at a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to take now, so I came up with a near futurist name. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist with one word, no hyphens or anything like that. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. If you're new to the show, you're very welcome. But that's more than enough about me. My guest today is a practicing doctor who's urging the NHS to take steps to improve technology after witnessing several patients being harmed and even killed due to the loss of paper patient records during his career in healthcare organizations. Now he shares his story about how he wants to change the broken system and help save lives with a revolutionary electronic patient record system. One of the things he's said in the past is that he's watched a 50-year-old academic go from being otherwise fine apart from a headache to becoming mute and in a wheelchair because of something the team had done. He knew he couldn't sit back and watch this happen any longer and practice as a doctor without doing something about it. Dr. Michael Brooks, thank you for joining me. Hi there. And I want to get into the meat of what we're here to talk about pretty quickly. But first, could you tell me a bit about yourself and your background? Sure, yeah. So I I went to um, university in the east of England and qualified as a medical doctor about 10 years ago. I've always been a software developer at heart. I mean, since I was about the age of 12, I'd be editing, I'll be making computer games and putting out bits of code. And I used to sell a floppy disk of computer code and games to all my friends at school. So it's always been a thing that I've done in the background and kind of kept the skills up. So I qualified as a doctor back in 2009 and then started doing the rotations as we do once you get your medical degree in various hospitals across the UK. And whilst I was a junior doctor, things became rapidly apparent that the system could be better. And I saw lots of things happen. So I eventually in my medical career set upon becoming an emergency medicine doctor, so A&E. I specialized in in emergency medicine. And it was about that time that I realized that there were these fundamental issues that needed fixing. So I established a company to build an electronic medical record solution uh, and ended up riding two horses for the last six or seven years, spending part of my time working in the emergency department and another part of my time writing code, testing and working with a team of developers. So we'll get to the company in a second, I promise. But uh, I would like to take a step back and establish what exactly the problem was. I mean, that was a fairly horrible story, tragic story about the academic that we started off with. Perhaps you could tell us more about that and how typical you find this sort of incident. The one thing about the NHS is, is that people find it quite difficult to criticise it. 
And but the same is true for me. The NHS gets so much right. You know, the fundamental principle of the fact that you can receive healthcare based upon your clinical need and nothing else. You know, that's absolutely right. So it's a worldwide, it's regarded as a fantastic healthcare system. And I don't want to take that away from it. You know, this is exactly the right way of delivering care in terms of philosophy. But that doesn't mean that we can't identify issues, faults, and make it better. Just because something is philosophically good doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to improve it. And that's the view I've always taken of it. Now, bearing that in mind, the NHS does tend to like to turn a blind eye to some of the problems that it has. And this might be why things are not apparent to somebody who doesn't work inside a hospital. So if we wind the clock back about seven or eight years, I was a junior doctor working on various wards and I was rotating every three to six months from one hospital to another, from one medical specialty to another, as as all junior doctors do. And while I was going through my rotations, it was pretty obvious that things were quite inefficient. I was spending a lot of my time finding bits of paper Unlike at your GP practice, where you're used to seeing them type in computers, at pretty much all the hospitals I worked in, and it's still the case today, medical records are done on paper. They're written in manila folders. And I'd seen a whole stack of little incidents, little things happen where bits of information had gone missing or an important part of a patient's care plan hadn't been executed upon because somebody couldn't read that handwriting where that care plan was written. There was a constant background of there being little inefficiencies and little problems. And then it all came to a head about seven years ago, and I was rotating through um, neurosurgery, and I was working as a senior house officer, SHO, and I was asked to consent a patient for a procedure for an investigation. Now, the patient was a 50-something-year-old who had been transferred to our hospital from another hospital in the region because it had a bleed around the lining of the brain. This is called a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. And the biggest cause of subarachnoid hemorrhages are little weaknesses in the arteries in your head called aneurysms. Those little weaknesses, those outpouchings of vessels, if you have them, they can pop under the pressure in the blood vessels. And when they pop, they bleed. And the thing is, If they bleed, that can cause all sorts of other problems and and it can be fatal. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think there's the mortality rate from a first bleed is between 10 and 20%. Now, if they bleed once, now if if you have a bleed and you have an aneurysm and it bleeds once, it's very likely to bleed again. So this 50 something was sent to a hospital. His only symptom was a headache. Otherwise he was fully functional, coherent, could speak, could move, could do everything. And we'd performed a CT scan of his head. That's, you know, the donut scanners, you've probably seen them. Sure. We do this with dyes so that you can see the blood vessels. And we'd done that. And it shown the, the, the free blood where it shouldn't be. But these aren't the world's best resolution tests. Despite them being very medically advanced, they can't always see things down at the sort of the millimeter scale. So we were, had the situation where we got a guy who'd had a bleed that suggested he may well have an aneurysm. We couldn't demonstrate that he had an aneurysm, but the test that we'd used wasn't terribly sensitive for it. And because it's so catastrophic, if you miss an aneurysm and don't do something about it, it's really important that you are damn sure there is no aneurysm in that patient's head before you send them home. So the next line test is a more invasive test called an angiogram or a digital subtraction angiogram. And what you do is you poke up a 
ca- a catheter or a cannula through the arteries. You introduce the artery all the uh, the cannula all the way up till it gets to the arteries supplying the brain. You squirt dye in and you take a picture with a high resolution X-ray, and you get much better pictures and it's a much better ruling out test. The downsides of this are that because you are poking something through the vessels that supply the brain, you can generate blood clots on, from the foreign body that you're introducing, and you can also dislodge some of the furring up stuff that appears in people's arteries as they get a bit older, the atherosclerosis. You can dislodge some of that. And if either a clot or that stuff goes whizzing off to where the brain is, you can cause a stroke. Got so it. that's a risk of the procedure, yeah? Yeah. I was asked to sit down and consent this patient for a digital subtraction angiogram. And as part of the consent procedure, you explain what the procedure is uh, that the patient's going to undergo, what the risks are, what the benefits are, and then you have a discussion with them about what they'd like to do. I explained the risks being we could cause a stroke, and we'd worked out that was about a a 1% risk in this particular patient. Versus the benefits, well, the benefits were identifying almost definitively whether there was an aneurysm there or not, and therefore, if there was an aneurysm, avoiding the risk of it re-bleeding. And we'd worked out that the risk of him, of him having an aneurysm and the aneurysm re-bleeding was about 40%. And most re-bleeds or many re-bleeds are fatal. So really what I was saying is, look, there's a 40% chance you'll have a massive bleed in the, in the head that could be fatal versus a 1% chance of stroke. Which route would you like to go down? He was an intelligent man. He, was with, he got it all the way through. And he essentially said, look, this is a no-brainer. I think I'd like to have the test. Yes. So he signs a consent form, and then the following day, we went down to the angio suite, the angiography suite where this test is performed, and I went with him because I'd never seen this before. I'd never seen this particular test done before, and I watched him be put on the uh, radiologist angiography table. The radiologist then draped everything. Uh, The radiologist, by the way, is the doctor performing this procedure. Uh, Drapes the patient with sterile drapes, etc., and I watched him introduce the cut down, introduce the catheter, squirt the dye in and take pictures. And you could see them come up on the video screens that were attached to the x-ray arm. Now, at the end of the procedure, the, the radiologist derobes, went over to a desk at the end of the angiography suite and then started playing back the images and pulled out a reporting piece of paper and started writing his report up on this piece of paper. He then gave that to me, put that in the front of the notes, and we went back off to the ward with the patient. All done. Then a day or two later, we had the consultant ward round. The consultant is the senior neurosurgeon who is kind of responsible overall for all the patients uh, and would do any operating necessary. Right. We got to the end of this guy's bed space, and the consultant turned to me and said, so what did the angiogram show? Now, if you imagine the scene, we're in a little ward and we're in one of the bays. We are carting a trolley with about 30 cardboard folders stuffed full of A4 notes for all the patients we're going to see. So I pull out a manila folder, which is for this patient. I open it up and I open up to the page where the investigation stuff was. And instead of there being the angiography report, there was just an empty section. It wasn't there. Right. So I could feel the blood drain from my face because when you're quite junior and you're faced with a consultant neurosurgeon, you know, it's pretty intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I can't see it. It's not here. So I was then sent to go looking for this piece of paper. 
I looked in every single drawer in that ward. I looked at the bottom of every one of these trolleys. I looked in all the other patient notes in case it got got misfired by somebody else. I went all the way down to the angiography suites to see if I could find it down there. I then went into the radiology reporting room and asked if the person who had done the test, the radiologist, was there. Turns out he was a locum, so a temporary who wasn't there and they didn't know when he was going to be there next. And I then humbly asked if they wouldn't mind re-reporting the test going back over the images. Now, this never goes down very well when you're speaking to consultant radiologists, but they explained that in this particular hospital, as was the case in many other hospitals, the angiography suite was using analog equipment and there was no mechanism for the videos that were obtained to be captured and recorded digitally and permanently saved. So what was happening is they would capture these videos on a temporary tape. Once the report was done, they'd then chuck the tape into a bin for someone else to pick up and record the next test over. So essentially they were saying, look, we're not sure what tape it is on. And in any case, you know, it's probably going to have been recorded over by now since the report has been done. So I then went back up to the ward. I, I paged the consultant neurosurgeon and I said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but uh, there's, I've been down to the angiography suite. I can't find the report anywhere. And the, the radiologists say that look, they don't think they've got the original images. The consultant was pretty blasé about this. He'd seen this happen a lot. And he said, oh, well, we'll just do the test again. So I went back to the patient bedside with a brand new consent form, big A3 trifoil form to fill in. I was fed the line to say, I was told that I should tell him that we we couldn't obtain the results that we wanted. And I went through the risks and the benefits again and explained we need to repeat the test. And he was really good about it. Mm -hmm. Um, He could see that I was flustered and embarrassed and he was making joke of it. He was saying, oh, it's all right. Just just make sure you go back through the same, same wound. I don't want an extra hole in me, thanks. You know, he was joking about it. Sure. He signed the form. You know, same 1% uh, risk of stroke versus uh, 40% risk of a re-bleed. And then the following day or the day after, he was then taken down to the angiography suite. And I didn't go down this time. And guess what happened this time round when he was in the angio suite? Is that a rhetorical question? He stroked. He had a massive left middle cerebral stroke. And... He rapidly developed uh, right-sided weakness. He lost the ability to speak. And the next time I saw him, here he was in a wheelchair with a drooped face, with no use of his right side of his body, no use of his right leg, unable to talk, unable to walk. And, you know, a few weeks later, I, I rotated on. And the last I'd seen of this guy was somebody go from having nothing more than a headache to being profoundly disabled in a wheelchair. And we did that to him. That was our fault. And that was avoidable. It was a system's fault, ideally. It sounds to me as though uh, I appreciate your view is that the paper system was the problem. But isn't also the problem uh, the recording something onto analog tape and then discarding it immediately so there can be no reviewing and re-verifying of that? That also sounds pretty unwise. Yeah, um, and I think it's because the, the environment at the time that, that a lot of radiology had been moved over to a digital system. And so if you ever have any x-rays taken, 
in the, the digital x-ray suites or you have a CT done. They are captured digitally and they're permanently retained. But it was just that the angiography seemed to fall into this little, it was, it was a little lacuna, it was a little oversight area. And I don't know whether that was just because the equipment was in the process of being upgraded or whatever. But it illustrated to me really strongly that we had a problem and we had a problem that desperately needed fixing. And remember, this was on the background of me witnessing many other errors. I'd seen lots of patients who ended up having to stick around in hospital for more days because they hadn't received a particular medication or test because someone couldn't read what someone else had written. Uh, and I'd seen how other junior doctors and nurses were spending sometimes up to 15% of their time trying to find a piece of paper or trying to wait for someone else to finish writing in the notes. So you're absolutely right. There are lots of little things and, and there's a really good model for when you have a catastrophic patient error, which was published by James Reason. It's called the Reason's Swiss Cheese Model. And it's the idea that there are lots of different layers of defences when it comes around to protecting patients against harm. But every now and then, because none of those particular layers are absolutely perfect, they all have little holes in them. They have little areas where mistakes can happen. And usually what happens is the next layer of defense catches them. But that next layer of defense has got holes in it too. And whenever you get a catastrophic patient error, you find that what's happened is all these little holes, all these little defects and all the layers of defense have lined up. And so when you go back and look on it, you see how there was one thing wrong and another thing was wrong and another thing was wrong. And it was almost like the stars just happened to be aligned badly that day. So you, you will find this a lot. And there are many case studies of significant patient harm where actually there were loads of different lines of defenses that all had these defects lining up. But for me, it was quite clear that the way data was being captured and handled was not only inefficient, it was dangerous. And it kind of brought to a head the defects in the system we were working in. Now, I then brought this issue up to management. You know, I said, look, this has happened. I feel very bad about it. What can we do to prevent this from happening again? And I was essentially told, sorry, this is one of those things, you know, stop making trouble, I was told once. And that felt very wrong. I think of all the things, the idea that, oh, if there is a mistake, let's just brush it under the carpet rather than let's do proper root cause analysis. And instead of trying to point the finger at someone, let's just find the problems and fix it. Um, okay. Without uh, wishing to echo the stop making trouble belief, and I do think we should be constantly aiming to improve stuff, no doubt about that, particularly where lives and quality of life are at stake. But to play devil's advocate for just a second, there's always going to be human error. Now, occasionally in your field, in the medical field, this will cost lives, but weighted against the lives that are saved or, and or improved, that's going to be a tiny proportion, isn't there? I mean, I hear your frustration, and obviously my heart goes out to the guy who had the stroke. But isn't there an extent to which you're railing against the inevitable? This is the human condition. It's what we, we're flawed. It's what we do. Humans absolutely are flawed, and there is human error. So I would say, yes, you can never make the error rates, especially when humans are involved, zero. But look at the data. The rate of medical error is approximately 1 in 10, 1 in 11. So if you're admitted to a hospital, let's say there's a 1 in 10 chance that you will experience a medical error of at least moderate significance. Mm -hmm. Let's have a look now at the aviation industry. And these have error rates in the millionths. How have they managed to do that? 
bearing in mind there are humans? And the answer is, and I believe the answer is, the huge difference between medicine and aviation is that aviation has had this almost obsessive compulsive focus on weeding out any areas of vulnerability, patching those problems, patching those holes, fixing them. And it's been doing that systematically as it goes along. And, you know, safety is, it's been the number one aim in medicine. It, it's just, we've never attained anywhere near that level of consciousness when it comes to safety never that level of focus. I take that point, but isn't there, don't you also have to factor into that, that uh, in the aviation industry or automotive industry or any of these others, the vehicles are pretty much a constant because they're manufactured to a given standard, the variation within the human body. And I appreciate medicine is as exact a science as you can make it, but an awful lot of it is down to a percentage. It is down to whether that aneurysm is likely to explode or whatever is going to happen. There's an awful lot more educated guesswork in there than there is in something that's an aeroplane that you've had the privilege of designing or the advantage of designing from the ground up and the next one will be exactly the same there are more variables in medicine and i think yeah you i don't think we can get quite up to the levels of aviation but i do not buy the argument that that level of variability in the human body is responsible for you know six orders of magnitude difference in our error rate i just don't buy it and if you look at the types of error that are occurring, you realize there are plenty of things that can fix them. The two biggest causes of medical error are number one, it's actually medication errors. And this is errors with prescribing, administering medications. That is stuff that is data driven, right? I'm not talking about misprescribing where you give a patient a drug that actually it turns out wasn't uh, where you've prescribed a drug correctly. It's been given to the patient correctly. And then it turns out that actually that's not what they were suffering from. And that was an inappropriate drug. I'm talking about you have a patient who has a need for a medication. It is prescribed. It is given to the patient. And somewhere along the chain, either the wrong dose was prescribed. It was given to the wrong route via the wrong route. It was given to a patient who was allergic to it or the wrong capsule was dispensed out of a packet and given to a patient. These are all things that have got nothing to do with the variability of human disease. It's got nothing to do with that. That is entirely system- systematic. So that's number one cause of error is medication errors. And number two, shortly, uh, very closely behind it is misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can say, okay, misdiagnosis Yes, that has got a level of variability in it. But again, there are things that can be done to reduce the instance of misdiagnosis. There are ways that you can assist doctors to uh, assimilate the data and come up with the correct diagnosis. Being somebody who works in emergency medicine, diagnostics is a huge part of what I do. We do two things well in emergency medicine. One is resuscitating people and two is diagnosing people with often threads of information. Now, In emergency medicine, when I started, I was staggered that I was never given a list of the patients that I'd seen, the diagnosis that I had made, and then what their subsequent final diagnosis ended up being when they were discharged from hospital. I've never been given that. So there is no feedback mechanism to help me improve my diagnostics. In fact, what I've done is I've gone out of my way to seek that information. So, you know, that's a systemic example of systemic reason of how you could improve misdiagnosis. And the more you look, the more of these things you find, you know, simple things like you can't read someone else's handwriting for the care plan. The care plan may be absolutely right for the patient, but they might not 
receive that medication that was indicated or they might not undergo that advised test that your colleague has suggested when they consulted on the patient because you can't read their handwriting. Again, that's not a human disease variable there. That is a systemic problem. And of course, an awful lot of those things, uh, would the human handwriting thing would, of course, go away uh, if you had electronic records, but also the ability to perhaps slice and dice the data in different ways so that you could uh, cross match it with outputs. And uh, the final diagnosis, I appreciate that would also be much easier if the data were held electronically. So what's actually available uh, in terms of electronic data handling and uh, who's using it either in this country or elsewhere? So when I, when I looked at this, um, so what happens seven years ago, I kind of got to the point where I felt that I couldn't carry on practicing without doing something about it. I looked far and wide. And what there was at the time, there was a big national program for IT, they called it, to develop an electronic patient record for hospitals across the UK. But it was well behind schedule. There was a product called Lorenzo that was being built. It was well behind schedule. It was well over budget. I think they'd spent about six billion on it at this time. And it was chalked up to a failure and it was quite clear that this project was going to fail. So what had happened in the UK is that everyone had thought this was a done deal. that This product Lorenzo was going to be the thing that would solve all these problems. And then it became quite clear that actually for 10 years that this thing that we were waiting on uh, was never going to get delivered. So the, the UK's answer was not going to happen. Uh, I then looked at other solutions and mostly they were systems built on 1970s and 1960s technology imported from America. So they were, they were clunky. You had to install them on individual machines. They didn't work on tablets, so you couldn't take them up to a patient's bedside. And most importantly, they were, they were systems geared towards billing and insurance remuneration. They were, you know, they're for the American system, working out how to bill patients and make claims off their insurance. And, and the, 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 the frontline healthcare elements were kind of tacked on as an afterthought. So it was a bit like trying to bash a square peg into a round hole, trying to fit these into the NHS environment where we are much more focused on what the patient's disease is and what the clinical outcomes are rather than how we're going to get remunerated from the medical insurance company. Yes, so, there's also trust issues, aren't there? I was, uh, as a journalist, I've interviewed people as a conference speaker. I've uh, listened to people talking about how Google or Microsoft in particular have done great things with this sort of thing in America. But then you've got to be, with our culture, you've got to be prepared to, to hand over your medical records to someone like Google or Microsoft. And in the UK, I just don't think it's going to happen. See, uh, it doesn't have to be that way, though. The thing is, is that you can, you can set up a data architecture in such a way that the people who only have access to the data are employees of the healthcare organization. So you can set up, for instance, um, isolated environments where because of the way you have deployed encryption, it is mathematically impossible for anybody in your organization, uh, sorry, anybody in the technical organization, the people like Amazon or Google, to actually get at the data and actually only people that have got links to the ultimate keys to actually decrypt the data, i.e. employees of the organization, can get at it. You know, there are ways and means you can do that. You don't have to put all your data into a big data lake that's owned by Microsoft, Google, Amazon, three firms for example i'm not saying they are doing this no no um, and i i think it's absolutely right that we question these trust issues i think it's really important that we question the issue of reliability of, of computerized systems and that 
it's the attitude of questioning these things that we're ready, that we're more than willing to do for technology that we aren't so willing to do for the old paper pen analog environment of medicine. That is almost the reason why it's so unsafe. So I think this is great. We question these and, and then we can come up with technological solutions to them. Which I believe you have, or you're at least working on. So do tell me about your company and uh, what's, what's your offering and how does it address the paper to electronic data dilemma? So when I look back at all of these solutions that were available, and there weren't that many, it was quite clear that we're talking about American import solutions designed mostly for billing that weren't very easy to use. There were even hospitals in America that were advertising no electronic medical records as an incentive to get doctors to enroll and join their hospital. So we set up about now six years ago, we started building our electronic medical record system. So the company is called Patient Source Limited and mm -hmm. our electronic medical record system is called Patient Source. And from day one, we have put doctors, nurses and software developers and designers in the same room and we have had that frontline clinical input to the design from absolute day one. And we have gone around and built things that doctors and nurses feel is necessary for them to do their job. So it's almost entirely focused on being easy to use for doctors and nurses, as well as solving the patient safety issues. And we've been doing that now for six years. We've been doing improvements and creating internal releases every four weeks for six years, gaining feedback from a pool of doctors and nurses. And then later on, when we started to release it into the clinical environment. And so we've tended towards what I believe is the ideal solution. Now, a perfect example of why patient source is superior to these legacy solutions is that if you go onto the patient source vitals chart for a patient, you will see blood pressure and pulse plotted on charts in exactly the same layout as we had on paper, but it's got all the computerized calculations and things underneath to make it safe. And the reason for this is that a doctor or a nurse going from the paper environment to a digital environment shouldn't have to modify their practice and knowledge to be able to interpret the data we've done the same thing with our e-prescribing module it looks like a drugs chart but has got under the hood all the dose checking interactions checking etc there's obviously a lot of infrastructure already in place you presume you would have to get rid of quite a lot of that and given the funding of the nhs you know we would have to talk about money um, how many people are taking this up and is all this uh, change really going to happen we've had two nhs deployments so far and we've got several charity and private deployments and that's in the uk we've also got two overseas deployments in fact two entire countries running on patient source so you know it, it's happening the nhs has issues about getting innovation in it's i think the way technology is procured and deployed there's very much a fear of new things there's very much a fear of small medium companies and i think that has been the main barrier it's not been an infrastructure view sorry to uh, cut you off there we are running quite short of time by now perhaps to round off could you tell me where people can find out about uh, your company and i assume you have a website for example uh, yes, so patientsource.co.uk is our website and you've got the ability to play with the system, access a demo, etc. and read some successful case studies. And we've got a few videos as well that you can access that shows the impact of patient source when it's been deployed into the NHS. Okay, and that's uh, patientsource.co.uk, was that correct? Patientsource.co.uk. Dr. Mike Brooks, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. 
And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk and maybe leave a review somewhere. See you in a fortnight. Thank you.